1: Luke Skywalker is barreling towards the exhaust entrance in the last act of A New Hope. Vader and two TIE fighters tailing behind him. He has to make this shot, and his backup has been decimated. But just as he's about to be shot down, Vader's finger on the trigger. Lasers shot from an unknown ship hit one of the TIEs and explodes, sending Vader and his backup careening. Han Solo cuts into screen with a woohoo. I have you not? It's hard not to be familiar with the end of 1977's Star Wars. The film broke blockbuster records, shepherded in one of the most iconic series of all time, and made a household name out of its creator, George Lucas. However, erased from the story is his editor, his ex-wife, his ex-partner, the woman who won an Oscar for editing Star Wars, who rebuilt that entire sequence from the ground up and gave it the suspense and payoff that it needed. Marsha Lucas. Marcia Luke Griffin entered the world on October 4th, 1945. Her parents divorced when she was only two, and she spent most of her childhood with her single mother in California. Growing up, Marcia understood the need for financial security and often worked during the day and went to class at night in order to help her family. In 1964, Sandler Films hired Marsha to be an apprentice film librarian and promoted her to assistant film editor within a few years. It was still an era in which film work was largely seen as a man's world. There were virtually no women represented in camera work or directional positions. Even editing, which was seen as the most female-friendly pieces of filmmaking, was mostly filled by men. But Marsha persisted. She found joy in the work and decided that even if she had to do it for free, she'd continue in editing. She worked on commercials and educational films, basically whatever she could get her hands on. A few years later, in the late 1960s, one of the very few prominent women in film editing, Verna Fields, was looking for a team of editors to work on a documentary. She hired Marsha Griffin, who was still associated with Sandler Films, and a group of film students. One of those film students was George Lucas. Fields paired Marsha and George together, ostensibly because out of the whole crew, Marsha was the only professional editor and had the most experience, while George... He had the least. In Skywalking, The Life and Films of George Lucas, biographer Dave Pollack wrote, Marsha knew more than George about editing technique, but her job was to help him. Marsha found herself impressed by George's love of film and dedication to the craft. The two found that they worked well together and slowly began to build a relationship outside of work. Marsha was, by all accounts, boisterous and outgoing, countering Lucas's well-documented shyness. I always felt I was an optimist because I'm extroverted, she said. And I always thought George was more introverted, quiet, and pessimistic. Friends and family felt they'd balance each other out. The relationship waylaid her plans to be a commercial editor with a consistent paycheck in LA. George had dreams of becoming an independent filmmaker and wanted to move to San Francisco, leaving Marsha with a difficult decision. February 1967, George asked her to marry him, and she accepted. Looking back, George said, Marsha's career was in Los Angeles, and I respected that. I didn't want her to give it up and have me drag her to San Francisco unless there's some commitment on my side. A few weeks later, found Marsha in L.A. and George in Nebraska, working on Francis Ford Coppola's The Rain People. Marsha had been offered a job as an assistant editor on Haskell Wexler's Medium Cool in Chicago, a job that would lead to her first film credit and six to nine months of steady work, which was almost too good to be true for the struggling young couple. Unbeknownst to her, George had gotten the go-ahead to offer Marsha a role on Coppola's film to help organize footage. That job would last five weeks. Once again, Marsha had a decision to make. Financial security was very important to her, and she was determined to make it on her own. But they were engaged and in love, so she decided to go to Nebraska. As luck would have it, she was able to take the medium-cool position as well, securing her first film credit when it was released in 1969. That same year, on February 22nd, George and Marsha were married in California. They moved into a home in San Francisco and began their life together. Hey,
0: man, I'm sorry if I scared you. You're going to have to do one hell of a lot more than that to scare me. Yeah, I've been looking all over for you, man. Didn't nobody tell you I was looking for you? Hey, I can't keep track of all you folks running around here backwards. Hey, you're supposed to be fasting in the valley, man, but that can't be your car. It must be your mama's car. I'm sort of embarrassed to be this
1: close to you. George and Marsha had two very different approaches to filmmaking. George was far more interested in the abstract and the technical, while Marsha, she was more invested in the potential emotional impact. George's first film, THX 1138, on which Marsha played the role of assistant editor, was largely panned. Marsha had argued for more emotion, and George... He just shot her down. George's next movie, American Graffiti, was almost made on a dare. The director wanted to prove his wife wrong. Bringing emotion to a film was, in his eyes, frankly basic, and it took no real skill. In the book Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, How the Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Generation Saved Hollywood, Marcia is quoted as saying, After THX went down the toilet, I never said, I told you so. But I reminded George that I warned him it hadn't involved the audience emotionally. He always said, emotionally involving the audience is easy. Anybody can do it blindfolded. Get a little kitten and have some guy wring its neck. All he wanted to do was abstract filmmaking, tone poems, collections of images. So finally, George said to me, I'm going to show you how easy it is. I'll make a film that emotionally involves the audience. Initially, Universal brought Virginia Fields on to edit the film. But after editing a first rough cut, she moved on to another project. Marcia stepped in to help George edit graffiti to the contractual runtime. During this second edit, she listened to George's suggestions. But his final version was, by all accounts, kind of terrible. Marsha went back in and re-edited the cut on her own. And in 1974, Virginia Fields and Marsha were nominated for Best Editing Oscar for their work on American Graffiti. They didn't win, and Marsha, she was devastated. You talking to me? You talking to me? Talking
0: to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking? To? Talking to me?
1: But an Oscar nomination was still impressive. Marcia's career was taking off, and in 1972, she'd been hired as an assistant editor on Michael Ritchie's *The Candidate*. Ritchie was so impressed with her work, he recommended her to his friend Martin Scorsese. In *Easy Rider*'s *Raging Bulls*, Marcia said Marty called, asked if I could do his first studio feature a film called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which was released in 1974. She continues, he was terrified of the studio executives. The Winners was going to give him some old fuddy-duddy editor or spy. The studios were known for having spies on projects. Marty liked to edit, and I felt like I was being hired to cut a movie so I wouldn't cut it, so I'd let the director cut it. But I thought, if I'm ever going to get any real credit, I'm going to have to cut a movie for someone besides George. Scorsese's producer, Sandra Weintraub, said of Marsha, it was good for her to get away from her husband's house. Here she was, this wonderful editor, working on her husband's films. I don't think she got taken seriously. Throughout the process, Scorsese ultimately gave editorial control to Marsha, who was hired on as the film's editor. He then went on to hire Marsha as supervising film editor on his acclaimed film and breakout movie for star Robert De Niro, Taxi Driver. When Marsha was in L.A. working on Scorsese's films, George joined her. There, he finished the first draft of Star Wars. Her influence was clear from the start. It was Marsha who suggested that George kill off Obi-Wan Kenobi. George told Rolling Stone, I was rewriting, I was struggling with that plot problem, and my wife suggested that I kill off Ben, which she thought was a pretty outrageous idea. He was intrigued. Her first idea was how 3PO get shot. But Lucas was adamant the films start and end with the robots and essentially have them be the framework for the rest of the movie. But the more he thought about Ben getting killed, the more he liked it. Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill, called Marsha the warmth and heart of those films, a good person he could talk to, bounce ideas off of. In 2005, Hamill spoke further about her contributions to the original trilogy. He said, You can see a huge difference in the films that he does now and the films that he did when he was married. I know for a fact that Marsha Lucas was responsible for convincing him to keep that little kiss for luck before Carrie and I swing across the chasm in the first film. Oh, and I don't like it. People laugh in the previews. And she said, George, they're laughing because it's so sweet and unexpected. And her influence was such that if she wanted to keep it, it was in. When the little mouse robot comes up when Harrison and I are delivering Chewbacca to the prison and he roars at it and screams, sort of runs away, George wanted to cut that and Marsha insisted that he kept it in. Initially after shooting, Lucas hired an editor in the UK to cut the film together, John Jimson. But after watching Jimson's version, Lucas wasn't pleased.
0: I had edited movies for my husband, George Lucas. I had edited American Graffiti. I'd been an assistant on his first movie, THX 1138. And then when we were in London filming Star Wars, I was never designated to be a film editor of the movie. But then he had an English editor that was working with him, and he kept coming home and being very unhappy. And eventually, George had kind of decided that he didn't want to bring the English editor back to the United States, and he asked me if I would edit the movie. And that's how I came to edit Star
1: Wars. The workload ended up being bigger than anticipated. So Richard Chu and Paul Hirsch were brought on to help. The three worked tirelessly on recutting the film and on at least one occasion spent 12 hours in front of their equipment. Towards the end of their editing process, Scorsese once again called on Marsha's talents and asked her to finish the edits on his film, New York, New York, after his first editor passed away. Much to George's chagrin and desperately needing a break from Star Wars, Marsha took the job. Star Wars wrapped editing not long after. In April 1978, Marsha, along with Hirsh and Chu, won an Academy Award for Best Editing for her work on Star Wars. It was a professional dream come true. George talked about the importance of editing in a behind-the-scenes interview from 1979 that was included on the Blu-ray release of the original trilogy.
0: To me, editing is what filmmaking is really all about. Because it's a, the one time you get a chance to create something out of material and actually deal directly with an audience. All the other times you're you're sort of generating material or supplies. It's like uh, making a film is like buying lumber or cutting down trees and making, making wood out of it. Where editing is like actually constructing a house. I mean, you actually can see it, you can see what you're doing and deal with it. Everybody says, you know, well, the script doesn't work, but we'll fix it later. And wow. they said, well, we're shooting this, but it isn't really working, but we'll fix it in the editing. Well, the editing is where it's got to be fixed. If it doesn't work there, the movie doesn't work. So that's, to me, the most exciting part.
1: IMDb lists Marsha as an uncredited editor on The Empire Strikes Back. No one can be sure how much of her influence is felt in the film, but it is true that she was one of the few people George trusted implicitly. And one of those few whose opinion truly mattered to him. But the years after Star Wars were relatively quiet for Marsha, who wanted to build a home while her husband was far too busy to do so. She had offers for editorial, producer, and directional work, but she just wasn't interested. George was working himself to the bone, building Skywalker Ranch and doing Raiders and Empire and several business ventures at the same time. Marsha pushed for normalcy. In 1981, they adopted a child, Amanda. George ended up hiring Lawrence Kasdan to finish writing Return of the Jedi and Richard Marquand to direct. In The Secret History of Star Wars, Marsha is quoted as saying, we just decided to try to keep our lives as normal as possible. We both have very traditional values. When you get a big jolt of money, it's very easy to be in awe of it and lose touch with reality. I don't want to raise children in a fantasy. But despite this, the Lucases were growing further and further apart. Perhaps as an effort to bring back their earlier partnership or in recognition of the good work she was known for, Marsha's husband hired her as a third editor to work on Return of the Jedi. If the intention was to save their marriage, it didn't work. And in 1983, George and Marsha Lucas divorced. Marsha walked away from the film industry. Later, when asked about Marsha's contribution to Jedi, George said she edited the dying and crying scenes, of which there are no shortages in that film. During an interview alongside Marsha in 2017, Dwayne Dunham, an editor on Star Wars Episodes 5 and 6, said if there was anything dramatic or emotional, George gave it to Marsha. And George always said, always keep one person whose opinion you trust to the very end. And that was always Marsha. As it turns out, Marsha was the last person to see Raiders of the Lost Ark before its release for distribution. And during a screening, Marsha herself interjected, um, what happened to Marion? It turns out that, all the guys forgot, having left the character tied to the stake. Marcia continued the story.
0: Under the stick, when <laughs> when all the Nazis get melted That's away right. and heads explode, <laughs> I, And there had been a scene written in the script. There was a scene where they were in San Francisco when they were coming, and he was coming out of a meeting, and she's like, "Let's go get a drink." And they right. never shot it because they didn't think they needed it. I said, "I don't want to be Marianne <laughs> in the, on the stick." Right. We need to shoot that. <laughs> so George went out and George shot the second unit scene. San yeah. Francisco. Of them coming down the, yeah. they shot it at the um City at the City Hall. City right Hall. Yeah. 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 It was kind of well, start, the movie needed it. Oh, it, was, it, <laughs> it needed it, it, everybody recognized it in that moment that it was that's exactly the right the right yeah. note it needs to be correct.
1: Nerds Across the Galaxy may thank George Lucas for creating some of the most innovative stories of their childhood and shaping both the movie industry and genre as we know it. But George's fantasy only stood the test of time because of Marsha's ability to edit it into a story countless of kids and adults still connect with to this day. Marsha Lucas was integral to the success of some of the best films of all time. We remember her name, and we remember her contribution. After all, without her, Marion might still be tied to that stake. Forgotten Women a Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Wire Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Preethi Chipper and read and produced by Cher Martinetti. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at sci Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sci-Fi Fangirls.